Good morning, and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Bear, your host, and we have a fascinating show lined up for you today. There's been a development in the technology world that I think you'll find very interesting here. I'm interested anyway, hope you are. But uh, we're going to talk about drones, and we're all familiar with the use of drones in the military world. Um, they've been used for many years on in the battlefield, on the battlefield, and uh, as a way to um, deliver weapons without, or at least reducing the human risk involved for the normal process of doing so by soldiers or airmen or whatever the case may be. But there's also been a trend where drones have been used in the civilian world, and I think we've all heard of uh, delivery companies utilizing drones um, to deliver packages. There's also been um, the use of drones in the law enforcement world, and that's really where this uh, development is uh, leading me to here, is the, the fact that there's a company that is uh, responsible for delivering a lot of technology to law enforcement agencies all over the country, and they have developed squad cameras, body cameras, other recording equipment um, for use in the law enforcement world, and they're kind of the leading uh, technology developer in that area, and it's a very, very large company. Um, so they have been working for about a year on developing a potential uh, item that would be a drone that is weaponized with a taser, where it could be deployed remotely, um, and the operator at some other location could utilize a taser from the drone, uh, much like a law enforcement officer would be able to utilize a handheld taser in close proximity to um, a situation that requires that. Now, uh, the use of tasers in and of itself is not without controversy. We've seen situations where um, it can be misused as a form of technology. It can uh, escalate a situation. But the overall idea with the use of tasers is that it's presumably a non-lethal use of force. Now, there have been rare instances when people have died as a result of, uh, of being tased. and um, But generally speaking, the idea behind having a taser is to uh, utilize a, a, a type of force that is uh, less lethal or close to non-lethal. So the idea in and of itself, combining the theory that if um, some form of technology can keep a law enforcement officer from being directly in the line of harm, combined with utilizing something that's already an accepted technology in the police world, um, that being tasers. The development here is with the idea that if this can be offered as a product, there might be certain law enforcement agencies that want to take advantage of that. I get it. But this uh, company has a board of directors like all companies do, and the board of directors uh, approves projects and funding and so forth. And there's a sub-component sub of the board of directors for this particular company that is an ethics advisory uh, component. It's like a council. 
And what they do is they um, look at the ethical implications and give advice to the board of directors as to whether they should pursue particular projects. And this particular project was something that, uh, again, they spent about a year deliberating on whether or not this was a project that uh, was going to be recommended for further development. Interestingly, uh, the board um, voted to not approve this project and based upon the advice of this ethics advisory group, uh, again, part of this organization. And the company then subsequently announced that they were proceeding anyway, in spite of the board of directors uh, disapproving it. That resulted in a large number, a majority actually, of the board of directors in this company resigning. And a report was put out by the policing project, which is uh, a component of the NYU, New York University School of Law, that uh, came out in January 2023, discussing the implications of this project going forward and the rationale behind uh, those who voted against it. So there is uh, a detailed report that talks about problems with uh, utilizing remote drone technology that includes weaponization. And one of the primary concerns is that there is the potential for misuse. And what we're talking about here is that there we already have problems with um, the use of tasers that we continue to work on trying to refine uh, with additional training and um, you know, familiarity with the the how that technology should be used in what circumstances and so on. There have been reports regarding the use of tasers against young children, individuals who are handcuffed or otherwise restrained, and individuals who have engaged only in verbal resistance and not active resistance. And there has been there have been studies that have shown that the availability of taser technology in and of itself can um, uh, increase the odds that there can be abuse of that power uh, because it is presumably non-lethal and there is a trend, at least a statistical um, trend, that shows that police officers are more likely to use it than, than not in a lot of situations. There has been a study that noted that uh, police abuse of tasers, although apparently rare, uh, presents an opportunity for troubled officers to dole out street justice or, you know, the human factor that we always talk about. The fact that somebody has this uh, technology and can misuse it. Um, so what's true of tasers in general would also be true of this particular technology, the the ethics folks were concerned about that being something that if the company put their name behind this technology, that there would be potential implications. Um, now, there's also a discussion here about how, although the theory of the use of taser is that it should decrease the use of lethal force, there are concerns that it could increase the use of non-lethal force. So an, an overall uh, increased use of force in general. 
There was a study of the Chicago Police Department that suggested that equipping officers with tasers has uh, a cause and effect that uh, resulted in an increase in the use of force overall. Um, now, after officers, it's shown been shown that after officers have been retrained in taser use, the use of force rates do tend to fall. But um, again, if we're adding an additional factor here, which is taking the officer out of the equation through by means of a remote operated device, you can see how that would logically extend to an overall increase in the use of force. So yet another factor that um, the board considered in voting against this was that there is the potential for what we call dehumanization when weaponized drones are used. Um, a growing literature on military use of drones notes that the unique characteristics of remote use of force Humans appear as figures on a computer screen, and decisions to use force often are made by teams rather than a single individual. Scholars have warned that these factors could lead to dehumanization of individuals targeted by the drone and could diminish operators' sense of personal, moral culpability for their decisions, again, leading to an overall increase in the use of force. So... It is very interesting that they went into all this detail um, as in an effort to make a responsible decision about whether this was, again, something that the company wanted to put their name behind. Um, another concern. The uh, existing use of force rules may be inadequate in the context of remote use of force. And I can totally see what they're talking about here. They said, you, again, if you add this um, additional layer of, I guess, insulation, albeit with the intent of protecting an officer from potential harm, which is a noble idea, but the effect this might have on the concept of appropriate use of force is yet another thing to consider. It is time for a break, and we'll be right back after these messages. So we know that we have uh, ongoing problems with how do we balance the fact that we have um, law enforcement officers that are armed and ha have the ability to um, lawfully use force in a variety of different situations? And as we all know, the, the rules there are designed to be fluid. They're supposed to be something that a well-trained, uh, disciplined officer should be able to analyze uh, very quickly and make uh, subjective determinations that are presumably um, better informed with better training than just an average citizen that might find themselves in that same type of situation. And we all know that uh, the training of law enforcement uh, is very important. It's something that we put a lot of money into with our tax dollars. We also trust law enforcement to exercise proper judgment in the right set of circumstances, but we also have to recognize that there are an infinite number of variables that can contribute to what the right decision is at any time. And the news is filled with examples of uh, situations where the law questions whether or not an officer acted appropriately or reasonably. Uh, under the circumstances, and we see people 
prosecuted for not exercising proper judgment or not relying upon their training properly. And again, there's a lot of controversy that surrounds that. Um, generally speaking, there are the, the legal structure surrounding use of force in general incorporates this concept of qualified immunity, where due to the nature of the job, we expect that there will be situations where an officer is not lawfully supposed to be held accountable for a mistaken judgment that is, yes, a mistake, but also reasonable under the circumstances. And when we use words like reasonable that are very difficult to define, and, and it's just a very broad concept, how do we apply that in any given situation? And always a challenge is what would what would somebody who wasn't there do if they were in the shoes of that person? And it's, it'll always be a challenge because it's always something that, um, you know, is going to exist unless we completely uh, give up to the idea of robots running our entire society. So let me just take a little side detour here to talk about something else that was in the news not too long ago. <clears throat> a different company, not the one we're talking about. <clears throat> and I'm not sure that this is a serious endeavor, but there have been uh, proposals out there and I think even some patents applied for to substitute the criminal defense lawyer with a uh, artificial intelligence process whereby a, a computer or algorithm or what have you would go through the process of the same things that a defense lawyer would do in his or her own brain and then render legal advice to an individual based on an automated process. Part of this discussion has been prompted by the fact that there is a very serious nationwide shortage of people that are willing to engage in uh, advocacy on both sides, by the way, um, both from prosecutors as well as defense lawyers in the process. It's, it's been a trend that has been kind of building concern for a while. And as you probably know, it, you can't just wake up one morning and say, hey, I'm going to be a prosecutor today. I mean, you have to have a bachelor's degree. You have to go to law school. You have to have experience. You have to have com comply with the ethical standards. You have to have appropriate training and supervision and all kinds of things. Now, although I've talked on the show many times before about how we kind of have a lack of uh, any further standards for someone to be involved in um, handling a situation that has dramatic consequences for those involved um, beyond just a law degree, um, there are certainly <laughs> things that one gains by means of experience. And I always talk about the, the analogy to pole vaulting. Uh, how do you pole vault for the first time? And I, and I say that without knowing, by the way. <laughs> um, I'm sure when you watch like in the Olympics and someone is pole vaulting, you know, way up in the air and you wonder like, how do you work your way up to that? Is there like a little pole that you start off with that I mean, just the nature of what you're doing is something that seems to be very difficult right off the bat. So the first time you try it, how do you even attempt that? 
Well, of course, you got to do something, and however that works, you end up building your skills and your and your instincts and everything else, um, and eventually you achieve some level of proficiency in it. So, in the world of law, it's something that you know we really don't have a, a regimented way of getting someone that experience unless they're under the tutelage or supervision of somebody else. And again, that is not required um, in order to be a defense lawyer. It should be, but it isn't. So looking back to uh, how how do we define in this very um, flexible and non-specific way what a reasonable use of force is in any given set of circumstances? And it's a very difficult challenge. It certainly is. So, getting back to this technology that we're talking about, um, let's remember that this is something that would be used squarely in the context of what the Fourth Amendment to our Constitution requires. And that requirement is that the police use of force must be reasonable. It's supposed to be an objective standard based on particular facts and circumstances of the case. But if you add this additional layer of dissociation from actually being there and making judgment calls because the law enforcement officer is personally present. So in other words, a remote operator of this type of thing, it really blurs how we're going to apply any kind of standard as to what or is what is or isn't reasonable as it relates to use of force. So again, what we're talking about here is that in addition to the fact that under the Fourth Amendment, we are all presumably free from unreasonable searches and seizures when such a search or seizure is authorized because it is reasonable. The, the process by which that search and or seizure occurs must also be reasonable, balanced with the appropriate use of force. So we call it proportionality. And it's a concept that, again, is also something that exists on the on the battlefield. Uh, there is it's almost like a self-enforcing type thing in that context, but applied to the civilian world, uh, that's what the Fourth Amendment is designed to do: is to be a control, a check on uh, use of force going beyond uh, where it would, again, be what we would consider as a society reasonable. So when they put all that in the Fourth Amendment, you know, they didn't bother to explain, and they couldn't. How could they? They didn't explain what reasonable means, and it's something that's supposed to be um, flexible based upon the individual circumstances and how society evolves over time. I mean, obviously, when the Fourth Amendment was drafted, adopted, ratified, all that other stuff, uh, nobody had any idea that such a thing as drones would ever exist, but the concept is still there. So when we're talking about reasonableness, it's a concept that incorporates the perspective of officers on the ground who, due to their proximity to the individual against whom force might be used, they, they may fear for their safety. And not their own safety only, but also the safety of the individual who is uh, being, uh, the force is being applied to. If this technology uh, obviates the need to send officers into harm's way, agencies may need to reassess their use of force policies, which has already been a difficult and challenging process to begin with. 
And it's complicated further by the fact that agencies differ in where they rank tasers on the force continuum. There's no mathematical way to do that. And there are differences in training. There are differences in policy. And there are we see variation across different agencies as to when and how taser technology is to be utilized. Uh, there are certain agencies, and again, there's no formal written black and white standard here, and there shouldn't be. It should be something that's flexible. But you can imagine that a police agency that um, is more exposed to high crime areas or places where um, it is known that there are more dangerous types of situations may have, reasonably, a different use of force policy depending upon um, the individual situation. Compare that with a, a neighborhood or area that doesn't have uh, those same known problems, and you'd have, again, a different standard for how and when those things should be applied. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. So further concerns that were raised on the, the idea of developing weaponized drones for law enforcement use. Uh, the board members of this company also considered and were concerned that many members of the public would respond negatively to the prospect of armed police drones. Um, and again, that's part of their job is to anticipate how the public could react. So that's really why I'm talking about it right now is because it does, as a general matter, seem to <laughs> be scary, right? <clears throat> I'm pretty sure I've seen this uh, <clears throat> in various movies, you know, futuristic movies where uh, the overall law enforcement function has been replaced by robots or, you know, remote types of things. I, I know I can think of at least a couple of movies off the top of my head where the whole premise behind that is that it is technology that's gone too far. I mean, that's kind of what the scary aspect of it is that we all uh, kind of tend to resist in general. But we have become somewhat immune to the general big brother concerns that we had years ago. And Slowly but surely, our society has become much more technology immersive. We see discussions about this all the time in case law, where appellate courts discuss the evolving expectations of privacy and how when uh, certain things become more commonplace, more uh, well-known by the general public, the understanding and knowledge of those types of activities is something that impacts what we would all reasonably expect in terms of privacy. So, you know, we have, we always talk about the, the home is one's own castle or the sanctuary of the home, the, the place where you enjoy the most privacy. And even when the Bill of Rights and the, and the various amendments that affect privacy, although that word isn't used anywhere um, in any amendment, right? But the combination of what due process entails, what reasonableness entails, what uh, the balancing of various freedoms entails, we acknowledge that there is this privacy interest, and it stems from the home. 
going beyond that, and the types of technologies that have developed over the years include things like we all know that if you have a phone nowadays, it does all kinds of stuff that we're all supposedly aware of, like tracking where you are. It keeps things that you delete. It tracks activity that you engage in both online and in the physical world, as far as where you're going, how long you've been there, how fast you're driving your car, even. We also know that it's become much more prevalent in our society to have surveillance cameras and equipment kind of all over the place. Uh, you should expect that if you're walking down any street in any city in America, that you're being recorded. And although that used to be less common, it's extremely common now. Um, and because of the fact that we all are supposed to know that, that has an impact on what our expectations are. And it becomes unreasonable to believe that when you're walking down the street, you have any interest in the privacy of what you're doing, right? So you know, it, it, it came up in various different ways. When the technology was further ahead than what the general public generally perceived, and we've all seen it in movies and TV when there's some sort of nifty technology that that is a secret, a secret to law enforcement agencies or other government agencies. And the public doesn't know what they are capable of doing in terms of surveilling, monitoring, investigating, and so on. So for, for quite some time, there had been, uh, there was a gap between what was possible and what people knew to expect. And that's where we started seeing a lot of the case law that dealt with wiretapping and uh, getting approval to monitor phone conversations that, that had been tapped. Or the ability, it's kind of fascinating when you think about it, there's thermo technology that was developed years ago and how this was used um, by law enforcement to determine things such as, uh, are there people present inside of a home by using a um, infrared thermal you know, detector to see if there was body heat uh, being emitted from people inside of a home, almost like an x-ray of a home. It could be used for a car. It could be used anywhere. And the fact that this was something that was beyond the general knowledge of privacy interests that the public had was uh, an issue that was raised early on when it became known this is technology that's used. But by the very discussion of what it is, that can have the effect of the general public obtaining more knowledge of that capability and thereby diminishing what we would reasonably expect uh, in terms of our own privacy. So, at, again, going back to adding that additional layer where if drones are flying around and... <laughs> if they're being operated by law enforcement agents, and if it's something that the public doesn't feel comfortable with, um, you can see why this further contributes to the deterioration of our overall privacy interests and what we expect. So if it's something that, it's, that is very obvious because you can see the drone flying down the street or peering into windows or going down alleys or whatever it's doing, with your own eyes, then the impact overall is that it just adds to 
that overall sense that um, society is becoming hyper-technical and it affects our rights. Um, another concern that was raised here is that there's been a trend that has been recognized by those who are concerned with the overall militarization of the of police forces. And this goes back to a concern that actually is embodied in a federal law that's very old. It's called the Posse Comitatus Act. And it goes back to, I believe, the, sometime in the early 1800s, mid-1800s. And the idea behind that was that the military um, needs to be used for military purposes. And this is actually the roots behind this idea are based on economies and fiscal concerns. That if the military crosses into a quote-unquote law enforcement role, that the funding that is supposed to be allocated towards national defense can bleed over into funding that goes towards things that are not specifically authorized or approved by the federal government's, particularly the executive branch's, authority to raise um, an army and a navy. So posse comitatus is this idea that um, true law enforcement functions need to be reserved for state use, and there is a prohibition in general on military assets being co-opted or loaned to, including personnel and equipment, to local law enforcement agencies. And you can see why, you know, at least economically, this was an initial concern, but also because of the fact that there is supposed to be a firm line where that we've drawn. It's an imaginary line, of course, but it's firm in the sense that police work is police work, military work is military work. And military objectives are designed to be applied towards an enemy, not civilians. And that's a critical distinction that exists in, in the law. So the more that we make our law enforcement agencies appear by equipping them in certain ways to be more like the military in terms of, of tanks, you know, battle drones, weaponized drones, these types of things. We're, we're getting further and further away from that distinction that has always been a very important part of the balance in our societal structure. We want law enforcement officers to have available technology to make their jobs safer and more effective. But we do not want those agencies to be engaging in military activity where there's an identified enemy, the enemy being we, the public. So on a, on a very large scale, the board of directors here were very concerned about how this would contribute to the militarization of domestic policing or the perception of that militarization, which could potentially undermine community relations and distort law enforcement views of their appropriate mission. And I totally get that. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. I'm going to wrap up this topic fairly soon and move on to another, but just one more uh, area of concern that was pointed out by the ethics advisory group uh, for this company. And they identified um, operational risks associated with weaponized drones. 
And this may be obvious, but factoring in things like mechanical failures, operator error, or even bad weather could cause drones uh, to crash or strikes to go awry. And there were concerns about liability for that, but again, the overall ethical use of this type of thing. Um, It's also the type of thing that when we introduce it to the world, there is the potential for bad actors that might hack police drones. Uh, So we have to consider that. And we also have to look at how in some circumstances it, it, it absolutely has to be preferable to have police on the scene in person. So think, for example, when there is a hostage situation or if having the ability to observe a suspect's demeanor and actions. Um, If we go down the path of habituating officers to conduct police work from a distance, um, it has the potential effect to have a bad impact and all that. So um, overall, we'll see where this develops, but it looks like there was quite a bit of internal um, dispute about whether to even go forward on this project. And then it it was announced that it's going forward anyway. And then, of course, this project um, released some of the deliberations that occurred and what the ongoing concerns are. So we'll see what happens. Um, I want to talk about another case that uh, just recently um, resulted in a reversal of a conviction of a man named uh, Albert Schweitzer. This has to do with a 1991 murder, kidnapping, and sexual assault of a woman in who was a, a tourist, a visitor in Hawaii. Um, the judge ordered this Mr. Schweitzer released from prison immediately after his attorney, his uh, legal team, presented new evidence and argued that he could not have committed the crimes he was convicted of and has spent more than 20 years locked up for. He was convicted in 2000 and sentenced to 130 years in prison. And Judge Peter Kubata ruled that he must be released from his shackles immediately. Um, He quoted that the justice system is flawed, calling himself one of the many imprisoned for crimes they didn't commit. Um, The petition filed outlined additional evidence in one of Hawaii's biggest murders, which unfolded on Christmas Eve in 1991 on the Big Island of Hawaii. Um, What happened was a woman, 23 years old, was found barely alive in the bushes along a fishing trail in Puna, a remote section of the Big Island. She had been sexually assaulted and beaten and later died at the hospital. There was a mangled bicycle that she had been riding that was found several miles away, and it appeared that it had been run into by a vehicle. Um, So this gained national attention and remained unsolved for years, putting intense pressure on the police to find the killer, you know, something that we're all familiar with. The uh, demand that somebody be held accountable for a terrible crime and the pressures that that puts on uh, law enforcement involved to get the killer, get the suspect, into custody and prosecute the person, hoping that our justice system works. Um, so the Innocence Project, based in New York, which I've talked about many times on this show, uh, and co-counsel in the case, uh, have been representing Schweitzer for a long time. 
and he's the last person who remained in prison in connection with this case. Um, one of the big things that happened here is that there is DNA evidence. And if we go back even, I know 2000 doesn't seem like that long ago, but uh, it, it was long enough ago that the technology was very different at the time. It had been determined that there was DNA collected at the scene <clears throat> that belonged to an unknown man. And even at that time, all three of the convicted men, again, there were three of them, were excluded as sources. That didn't deter the prosecution from going forward. And as often happens, even though a suspect uh, does not have their DNA and somebody else's DNA is present at the scene on a particular item of evidence, that doesn't tend to be the determining factor in whether or not somebody gets prosecuted for a crime. Because all it takes is some imagination on various scenarios as to how that may have occurred. We see cases all the time where there is either a lack of DNA evidence or a suspect is excluded as the source of DNA, yet there's some other theory as to why the person wouldn't have left their DNA there. Wearing gloves, for example, <laughs> is, an, is an explanation we hear all the time. Oh, there wasn't DNA there because gloves were worn. Okay, well, as uh, DNA technology has expanded, not only the specificity with which the testing can occur, the detail, but also the expansion of DNA databases, which has um, exponentially increased over the years. And our, our own state of Wisconsin has been part of contributing to that by virtue of our laws that require DNA samples to be collected from people arrested for offenses. You know, initially when that law was passed in Wisconsin, it only applied to felony level arrests. Um, it was then expanded to include misdemeanor level arrests. And then for quite some time, it was just entered into a DNA database and held forever, but uh, there have been modifications to that law to allow the removal of, um, or the I guess the expunction of that information from the DNA database if someone is ultimately not, not convicted of the crime that they were arrested for. But the overall idea behind in increasing that, the number of samples in that gigantic database is to enhance DNA technology itself by having more potential contributors, uh, not only because somebody could be identified as the source, but also because when you're looking at a larger database overall, you can more accurately state what the likelihood of a match is, uh, because it's very rare that you have ever have a complete exact match of DNA material. It does happen. But more often than not, it's not a complete exact match just because of the way the technology works. So fortunately, in this case, there was new DNA evidence that shows um, a t-shirt that was found on the scene soaked with her blood also had uh, the DNA of the unknown man that um, had been identified as the source of DNA from another piece of evidence. It also excluded the three men that had been prosecuted for this offense. So add a new level to this, 
And because of the, the betterment or improvement of technology, they were able to identify that an additional piece of evidence contained that same DNA profile that was on an, another piece of evidence that was not any of the three people that got prosecuted for this. We also learned that there was something called tire tread analysis that if you saw the movie My Cousin Vinny, <laughs> you know that was part of that case as well, that um, tire tread analysis is one of the, it's similar to fingerprint analysis in the sense that the same pitfalls that exist in fingerprint identification exist in the tire tread world. And it's made even more inaccurate by the fact that a lot of people have a lot of similar tires. <laughs> they're manufactured in uh, mass, so you know they're supposed to be identical. Now, the theory behind it is that given certain types of wear or how um, there may be particular irregularities in a tread that it is equivalent to like the fingerprint of the vehicle. But back in 2000, when this case proceeded, um, the technology was not as developed as it is now, or at least the criticism or pitfalls of that technology were not as well known because it had been advanced so vigorously. Well, now a reanalysis of that shows that there was improper evidence in that regard that was offered at trial. And then yet another thing, there had been a forensic odontologist, somebody that testifies about teeth, right? that had identified something as a bite mark, which was a very common practice back then, but has since been debunked as strictly false science or at least very unreliable science. All of this added up to eventually convincing uh, the judge that Mr. Schweitzer was not involved, as he had always claimed for the past 20-plus years. So uh, that's all the time we have for this week. Hope you've enjoyed the show. Continue next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.